gp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible Line. So good to be here in the studio. And if you are new for the first time listening for the next hour, we'll be taking questions as it relates to the Christian life, your personal ministry, or questions you have on the Bible. You can call us directly as Rick gave those numbers, 525-1859. That's area code 843. Or you can use our toll-free number. We have many people who listen through the internet each week, and we broadcast WAGP 24-7 at WAGP.net. And the internet number, if you want to use the toll-free number, is 877, the call letters, WAGP980. You can also email us here directly into the studio, and we get probably more questions that way than any other way. Uh, When your question is answered, we email you back and say what day it was answered on and try to respond uh, so that you can know that it's been answered and you can listen online after the broadcast is, is done. We get so many questions, we can't answer them all every week, but Rick gives them to me as they come in. And so let's take the first one, Rick. Actually, we have a live caller okay. standing by. Let's go to them first. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor Brogy. Good morning. Um, in our ABF with Rick, we were studying Second Corinthians and we were discussing the thorn in Paul's side. And reading some commentaries, doing some studying, it, it just, it just, you know, my meager opinion that it was a, a messenger set, sent by Satan to torment Paul in, in his work with the Corinthians. And in saying that, I was, I was wondering, since I know God is sovereign and nothing happens without his approval, does he allow Satan to become, as it were, a thorn in our sides from time to time? And I was, I was just curious about that. Well, I suppose uh, many times we attribute things to Satan for which he deserves no credit. He's obviously, as you mentioned correctly, under the hand of a sovereign God. Uh, Paul had some kind of physical ailment, some kind of uh, physical affirmity that God allowed to take place through the evil one. And we see examples of that, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In verse 5, where you have some individual in the church who is involved in the kind of sexual immorality that Paul basically says even pagans find disgusting. Uh, he was involved physically with his stepmother. And so they should have done something because it was well known. He says it's actually reported, and the word reported there is acuete which means um, it's been broadcast. In other words, it's well known throughout the whole church what's been going on. And because they refused to do anything, Paul went on and said, well, I've already decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So there you see an example 
not to an apostle, but just to an everyday church member where they are given permission to physically afflict someone. Um, Paul later in 1 Corinthians 10.10 says, nor should we grumble as some of them grumbled and were destroyed by the destroyer. Uh, They're referencing back to Israel, and he's saying, hey, I'm writing these things to you as an example for us, meaning us as Christians in the church age, that we would not fall into the same kind of uh, sin and therefore the same kind of calamity and discipline uh, that came with it. Uh, 1 Samuel 18 would be another example. So there are examples in the Word of God, both Old and New Covenant, where God will discipline his people in one aspect of discipline is he can bring a physical affirmity that comes from the hand of Satan. Now, there are many physical affirmities that people have, and there are many reasons for sickness, some just because we live in a fallen world, and so Christians and non-Christians alike get sick. Uh, Sometimes uh, people bring physical calamity on their own bodies because they've not been good stewards of their bodies. Some some folks, you know, are creating heart attacks and stroke problems because of dietary choices they make and lack of exercise and other things. And, you know, they're, they're digging their own grave with a spoon. And so we can bring things on ourselves and say, well, this is just some affliction that God's called me to live with. And And you could say, well, yeah, because you broke some of the natural laws that God wrote into the universe. And if you overeat, your blood pressure is going to go up and and everything else. So um, there are many causes for physical sickness. And the Lord recognized this. In fact, if someone's interested in exploring this a little bit further, they might want to listen to my sermon on John 9 when Jesus um, is asked by his disciples, who sinned, this man or his parents? that he should be born blind. And in that sermon, I kind of do a dialogue and a little expanse on a number of passages of Scripture as to the cause of sickness. Um, But again, you know, God uses many different things to discipline his people. Here, this discipline, you know, we think of discipline just in terms of a spanking sometimes, in terms of a, a negative aspect, but that's not always the case in Scripture. When the Bible speaks about those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. It's not always kind of a, um, you know, woodshed mentality where you've done something wrong and God has to bring you under his divine discipline. There are positive aspects to discipline as well that God brings on the believer uh, to shape us, to mold us. And Paul had such a fantastic vision, and that's really what he's underscoring and the marvel of heaven and how wonderful a place it is that God, just to keep him from ever boasting or bragging about it as a constant reminder, because the temptation would be so great to even mention, hey, let me tell you what I saw. Let me tell you what I was exposed to, that he had a constant physical reminder. Um, What it was, we don't know if I were to... um, have to make a conclusion. I would say it was Paul's eyes based on a passage in Galatians 4, Um, but we don't know for sure. We can't be dogmatic, but anyway, it's an interesting question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. Indeed, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980. If you have a question on today's Bible line and a listener would like to know your thoughts on the harbinger, it seems to be biblical and its references to Israel and the United States. Well, um, I I think the book is a stretch. Uh, You know, people want to find the United States in prophecy 
all the time, uh, and they will find a passage here and there that will say, well, here here's a reference to the eagle. This must be a reference to the United States, and, and contextually it has, say, absolutely nothing to do with the United States. Uh, the United States is never, ever specifically mentioned in prophecy. Uh, they are mentioned in a broad way, you could say, and that God mentions the nations of the world, and even there the word is ethne, um, the ethnicities of the world. So we think sometimes of nations just in terms of a geographic boundary. And that's not necessarily bad because there was a time when geographic boundaries often represented a particular ethnicity. And so Germans were Germans and French were French. But now, you know, you have huge Muslim populations that are not French uh, in their ethnicity, say, living in, in places like France. And they're taking over. Um, so when the Bible speaks of the nations of the world, it really goes back to the Tower of Babel and all the various ethnicities that came out of Babel uh, that they will go against Israel. Some countries are specifically named that came out of Babel, like the Russians, and their involvement against Israel in the last days, as Ezekiel you know, highlights. Um, so The Harbinger is an interesting book. It's a stretch, and I wouldn't um, put any credence to what it says. If you want to do a really good study, though, on Bible prophecy, and you're trying to get a handle on it, um, the best thing to do is to go back and to understand the foundational truths for Bible prophecy, and that will give you a grid to put through all the pop culture books that come through Christendom, some that are good, some that are terrible. Um, and uh, the book I would recommend would be uh, Dwight Pentecost's book, Things to Come. It's still a classic work. It was first produced in the 1950s. It's been in continual printing, which says a lot in and of itself. Uh, About 30,000 new books come out every year on Christian presses. Less than 1% ever make a reprint. And so if a book makes a reprint and it does it for many, many years in a row, it usually is a book that God has used in the lives of his people. Not always. You know, you've got um, some modern day books that are coming out in the pop Christian culture that are less than biblical, um, and like Sarah Young's new book that has come out, and I have a blog on it. It's terrible. The, the theology is absolutely horrendous. But Christians today don't know their Bibles anymore, and they don't know any better. And they think it's a great book when it's a terrible book, and the implications to it are are really awful. Um, and again, if you if you don't understand that, maybe go to searchthescriptures.org and uh, click on blogs and if you scan down, you'll see an evaluation of her book that I've done and where I analyze it biblically and where it is an error. But again, if you have a good foundation, uh, that will be of big help. You also might consider taking the course that we offer in our Institute of Biblical Studies on um, eschatology. It's definitely uh, not for those who are faint of heart. It's uh, 52 sessions, but it will give you a huge uh, foundation for understanding the grid of biblical prophecy. I go through all the various views, the arguments for and against, and what are some non-negotiables that we can say. And, and when you have that foundation, then you can pick up a book on prophecy and say, oh, well, 
it really is off here because it starts with this presupposition, which is a, uh, an empty proposition and not really based in Scripture. So anyway, I appreciate that question. All right. Our next uh, caller just called in this question. They'd like to know, is there any such thing as major and minor prophets in the Bible? Well, yes, there are. And that's a term that uh, came out in the 4th century A.D. to describe certain Old Testament prophets. And the term major and minor, we might say, is unfortunate uh, simply because the designation in modern-day terminology seems to imply that major means, oh, they're really super important, and minor, well, they're not as important. When in reality, the term major and minor prophets was a term that was used to describe the length of material that the prophets actually uh, wrote. And so the 12 minor prophets of the Old Testament take those people, for instance, uh, those men who we call minor prophets, their materials much shorter in length. And so if you take the prophet Isaiah alone, Isaiah's scroll uh, is longer. The amount of material he wrote, Isaiah the prophet, is longer than all of the uh, 12 minor prophets put together. Um, so that that's where the designation is, but it's not in reference to importance. It's only a reference in terms of length. And so just keep that in mind. 525-1859, toll free 877-924-7980 or email us at tbl at net. And Sharice from Bluffton writes, why did it take Jesus three days to be resurrected from the dead? Well, that's a great question. Um, it's really because that's what God prophesied would happen. Uh, God had a, um, it, well, let's, we'll hold off on that question because we have a live caller. We always give them preference. So we'll come back to it and um, let's go to our live caller, Rick. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Welcome back, Dr. Bergen. Well, thank you. It's good to be back. Hey, I've got kind of a long question, so bear with me, please. Um, during your seminary and, and and your Catholic background and things like that, um, can you kind of explain how and who decided what went in the Bible, what verses, and things like that? Because, um, you know, you see on TV these biblical mysteries and all this junk on TV. And um, the reason I'm asking is because I recently had someone tell my five-year-old daughter that Mary was married to Jesus. So, um, and I'm, I'm trying to find, you know, in the Bible where, you know, that is not the case and where I can defend, you know, our belief against that. Yeah, no, that's a great, great question. It, it's an issue of what we call canonicity. When we speak of the canon of Scripture, the word actually comes from a Latin word, which means a measuring stick. And so what we are saying as Bible-believing Christians is we believe it, we have a measuring stick by which we can determine what precisely uh, truth is. And so you can take any idea that someone has and put it into the mirror of Scripture, and if it matches, then we say, well, we should embrace this because this is consistent with what the Bible teaches. And if it doesn't match it, then we throw it out and we, we reject it and say, this is not consistent with, uh, with the Word of God. So then it becomes a question is, well, what is the Word of God? Are there 67 books to the Bible, like the Book of Mormon, um, the, our Mormon friends, the Church of Latter-day Saints, ascribe? 
they say there's a 67th book to the Bible, namely the Book of Mormon. And of course, Mormons are not Christians in any respect. They deny all the basic facets of historical Christianity. They deny that the 66 books we have can be trusted. And so when a Mormon missionary shows up at your door and you begin to reason with them from the 66 books that we have and say that are alone inspired by God, when push comes to shove, they are trained to give you some clear examples of so-called errors in the Bible. That's their last thing that they do. They don't normally do that. They normally take you to passages in the Bible totally out of context to defend Mormonism and to defend their views. But when push comes to shove, they'll say, well, the Bible can't be trusted. The only book that can ultimately be trusted is the Book of Mormon. Of course, the Book of Mormon is very different from the Bible. Uh, It has 17 books in it. So when we talk, talk about the Book of Mormon, and they call it the 67th book, there's actually 17 books within the Book of Mormon. So the Book of Alma, for instance, says that Jesus was born in Jerusalem. Well, the Bible says by the prophet Micah, and history records it by the prophet, you know, by by the apostle Matthew or whatever, uh, that he was born in Bethlehem. Um, And even secular history ascribes that. Well, who's correct? Well, obviously, if the 66 books that we have are the only books that God inspired, then indeed that that is the truth. Uh, The Catholic canon of Scripture is longer than ours, and the Orthodox canon of Scripture, that the Orthodox Church is longer even than the Roman Catholic canon. So there are some books that were written between the Testaments, between the last prophet that we have in our English Bible, Malachi, and the first book to be written, which chronologically was done by Matthew. In that 400-year period, there are some intertestamental intertestament books. Those are usually referred to as the apocryphal books. There's also some writings that came after the Bible was totally completed. And those are usually referred to as pseudepigrapha books. Pseudo meaning false, pigrapha from graphe meaning writings. So they are the false writings. And so like you mentioned, for instance, a book that um, says that Jesus was married to Mary. There is a book that was written about 230 AD, uh, long after the New Testament was completed, that teaches that. But does the 66 books of the scriptures teach that? Absolutely not. So there were certain tests of canonicity. And, and let me just say that the church, the body of Christ, and the Jewish people of the Old Testament did not determine what was inspired and what was not. Uh, they simply recognized what God had inspired. But there were certain things that helped them to recognize whether a book was canonical or not. For instance, was it written by a prophet or a man of God? Um, if you read Deuteronomy eighteen twenty-two, uh, Moses tells us that only a prophet of God will speak the word of God. And, and so how do you know whether he was a prophet of God? Well, he not only told long-term prophecies, but he gave short-term prophecies. So he would, like Isaiah, could say, well, Messiah in 700 BC would be pierced through for our iniquities. That's a significant prophecy because it's really a picture of crucifixion, though crucifixion had not even been invented 
but by the Persians about 250 B.C. and later perfected as a form of capital punishment by the Romans. Uh, but he describes that Messiah would be pierced for our iniquities. He describes that his uh, grave would be with transgressors and so forth and so on. And so all of these prophecies in Isaiah 53 that are futuristic, but Isaiah also gave some short-term prophecies, like something that an event that would happen 65 years later, and it happened just as he said. And that was the um, way that you could determine whether someone's uh, ultimate prophecies were true. Even the Lord Jesus told short-term prophecies. He served in three offices. He's as the God, the son, he served in the office of prophet, priest, and king. And he told short-term prophecies that were fulfilled, which allows you to trust his long-term prophecies. Not to mention, uh, there are other evidences that show that he's not only a prophet and not only a priest and not only a king, but that he is indeed God in human flesh. So, you know, was it written by a prophet or by a man of God? And was the man of God confirmed by some act of God? And again, that could be either a short-term prophecy that he foretold or some supernatural act. And so Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, as one of the tests of apostleship, says that, listen, we... um, the things that we do uh, confirm that we are apostles because we're doing the things that only an apostle can do, certain signs, wonders, and miracles. Um, You could also ask, well, does the writing coincide with previous revelation given by God? So if someone comes up with a uh, writing that's not consistent with previous revelation, if you believe that God doesn't make mistakes, then that would be a clear and certain thing that the other tests that confirm this man as a prophet, uh, knowing that his writing was reliable because of short-term prophecy that was fulfilled or miracles that accompanied his ministry, it would tell you right off then um, you had a measuring stick to evaluate these later writings. And so, for instance, one of the apocryphal books um, that was included in the King James Bible of 1611, not as scripture, but it was included there because they thought it was helpful. Uh, It shed light on certain events. And so uh, they took it out in 1613. But these apocryphal books written between the two testaments did shed light on history that took place in Israel over a 400 year period. But those weren't inspired works. And so while Catholics disperse them throughout their Old Testament, so for instance, in our English Protestant Bible, we have 12 chapters to the book of Daniel. In the Roman Catholic Bible, there are 14 chapters to Daniel because they take two uh, apocryphal books written hundreds of years after Daniel had written, and they make them chapters 13 and 14. To me, that's a little bit deceptive. Um, because they themselves would tell you that Daniel only wrote 12 chapters. Uh, We say chapters because, you know, that's how we divide the Bible up. That's added a a millennium after the Bible's completed. But they said the the length of the scroll is what we would consider through the end of chapter 12. But they add these 13 and 14 chapters on, which are two uh, intertestament books. Um, There's the prayer of Manasseh, for instance, Uh, that's written in the apocryphal books. Is it inspired? No. Why? Well, it contradicts previous revelation. It spoke of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as being sinless people. 
They weren't sinless. They were sinners. Uh, not only does God say all of sin, he gives a historical record of some of the very sins that they committed. Um, so does the writing co- coincide with previous revelation given by God? And, and what effect does it have? You know, there's something about um, the word of God that is different. It's alive. It's transforming. Um, it's uh, able to penetrate the human heart and change the human life. The Book of Mormon has no such power. The Koran has no such power. Uh, the Bible does. The Bible changes people for good. I wrote a little book. You can get it on Amazon or you can get it locally in our bookstore at the church if you are listening locally. But a lot of our listeners are listening through the Internet in different parts of the country and even foreign countries. If you go to Amazon, uh, I wrote a little book called How to Prove the Bible is True. And I go through five proofs showing that the only book that God ever wrote was the Holy Bible. I also did a course on bibliology that is much more in-depth. It's a 40-week course that you can take through the Institute of Biblical Studies. And I go through issues like inspiration, inerrancy, uh, how we determine canonicity, how we recognize what God had inspired uniquely. I do an evaluation of all of the major English translations, the different kinds of translations, a fluid equivalent, a dynamic equivalent, paraphrase translations, pros and cons, some translations that have not been faithful and accurate uh, to God's uh, originally inspired word and some that have and so forth and the differences and the benefits. So um, that that evaluation of the English Bible is done in section six. There's seven sections. There's about, uh, there's several hundred pages of notes. But a lot of people have taken that course and have found it extremely helpful. And if you're interested in the Institute of Biblical Studies, you can work for a Bible certificate degree as you work through this 30 hours of study. It's done on a master's level. It's very in-depth, but it's very helpful to a lot of serious students of the Bible. Great question. I appreciate it. But the short answer is Mary was not married to Jesus The Bible does not teach that. Uh, Some later writings long after the Bible that that aren't even intertestament writings or pseudepigraphal writings or false writings that no one ever accepted as inspired. Uh, They have taught that, but the Bible clearly does not. All right. Very good. Getting back to our question about uh, why did it take Jesus three days to be resurrected from the dead? Well, again, this kind of goes back to the former question. So the two dovetail together. One of the ways in which we know that the Bible is the word of God, among other proofs, is fulfilled prophecy. The Bible is the only book in the world written hundreds of years in advance that has minute specific prophecy. The Book of Mormon has no fulfilled prophecy, not one. The Quran has no fulfilled prophecy, not one, but the Bible does. Now, there have been so-called prophets in years past, like Nostradamus. That was, he was an individual that in the 80s, college students would often ask, well, what about the prophecies of Nostradamus? And what about him? You know, well, you know, you read some of his prophecies and they're so far fetched. You know, oh, yeah, this prophecy is supposedly a prediction of Abraham Lincoln. I mean, uh, excuse me, John F. Kennedy being killed. 
I mean, how do you see that in that? I mean, I could turn it upside down and sideways and not see that. He also predicted that the world would end in 1999. And a lot of us as campus ministers, we're always waiting for that one to be fulfilled. But if you're in campus ministry in the 80s and early 90s, uh, you you had to wait. But again, he would not follow the test of a true prophet that Moses gave. Uh, he wrote a false prophecy in many of them. Many of them did never came true that he made predictions on every prophecy that God gave in the Old Testament came true and they're of a very specific nature. So God in the Old Testament scriptures, as Paul affirms, he said, um, I delivered to you as a first importance the gospel that Christ died for our sins. How? According to the scriptures, meaning according to the Old Testament prophecies that he was buried. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead. And so the Old Testament scriptures predicted to the resurrection of Christ. And you see it in many fashions and in many ways. For instance, take the ark. The ark, Peter tells us, is a type of Christ. And so there is one ark with three floors and one door. Uh, we affirm the triunity of God and his personhood is seen in the ark itself. There is one door because there is one way of salvation. And God uh, closed the door and sealed Noah in, just like when you come through the one door Christ, God seals you with the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. And of course, the Bible tells us the day that the ark was resurrected, so to speak, up on top of Mount Ararat. It's the exact same day that Jesus rose from the dead. Coincidence? No, not at all. There are six feasts in the Old Testament um, that a picture in some respect, uh, either the first or second coming of Christ or both. For instance, it's not by accident that Jesus died on Passover. Why? Because he's the Passover lamb. When the Jews uh, left Egypt, God gave specific uh, instructions as to how the Passover was to be celebrated. You couldn't use just any lamb. The Passover lamb had to be without spot or blemish. And even when you ate it, you couldn't break the bones within the meat. Because, again, it was a picture of Christ who was sinless and not a single bone would be broken. Unlike the other two thieves whose legs were broken on that day in order to induce suffocation so that it would bring about their death and they could be buried before the high Sabbath began. So you see in the sinless blood of Christ a picture in the Old Testament Passover. And that's why Paul can say, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. He was buried and in the grave on the on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that Saturday. And again, leaven uh, was a picture of sin. And so they ate the bread without leaven in it. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread was on that Saturday. And there the sinless son of God was in the tomb. How do we know he was the sinless son of God? Well, because death had no power over him. Had Jesus died, been buried, and never resurrected, it would have meant that he was a sinner like the rest of us. But what day did he rise from the dead? He rose from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits on Sunday. Again, that's not by accident. The Feast of First Fruits kicked off a seven-week time frame in the Old Testament. And so when a farmer had first fruits, he would come and bring those early crops 
as a dedication to the Lord. And so they would bring a, a single, um, <laughs> a single, uh, um, oh, I'm trying to say it, a, a grain of wheat, uh, and to the priest along with a handful of grain. And it was a symbol of what was to follow. And Jesus, of course, was that first ever to be resurrected in a resurrection body as pictured by that single grain. And after he died, the Bible says, and was raised from the dead, there was a handful of Old Testament saints that walked around the city of Jerusalem, all pictured in first fruits. And then there's a coming great harvest to follow in the future. So it's not by accident that Jesus was raised from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits. And 50 days later on Pentecost, which was the culmination of that seven-week period, God the Holy Spirit came. So this was all pictured by illustration, by type. So the fact that God dictated for him to rise from the dead was all a fulfillment of prophecy and all a picture that he is indeed the Messiah, the Christ. Uh, We could look at the other feasts that are yet to be fulfilled, and they all uh, are a picture of the coming of Christ, and uh, they're interesting to, to ponder and think about as well. But good question. It's not by accident. Nothing happens by accident and the plan and providence of God. All right. We've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Carl. I have a question about Second Timothy 3, about in the last days there will be uh, men who have a form of godliness but deny its power, and I want to know what power they're denying. What power they're denying? Great question. Um, it, what's what is really key to I think understanding the passage is the lifestyle that they demonstrate. But realize this: in the last days, difficult times will come. And then he describes what this will be like. And this is what we might call the last of the last days. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding to a form, a morphe, a pattern of godliness, a mold of godliness, much like Jesus spoke of, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. The mold is the mold of Christianity, but it's not real substance because they've denied its power. Avoid such men as these. They've denied the power of the message and of the gospel that transforms lives. Because if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. He's a new person. The old has passed away and a new life has begun. And so God speaks in Ephesians 1 of Christ being dead, being buried, being raised. And then Ephesians 2 opens with the same truth, but it applies it to us. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God being rich in his mercy, he raised you up together with Christ. And so he speaks of the power and the transformation of the gospel. And then in that same chapter in Ephesians 2.10, most of us can quote 8 and 9, where God affirms that we're saved by grace without works. We're saved not by works, but 2.10 then says we're saved to do good works. And so this lifestyle is a denial 
of the transforming power of the gospel. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And that is really a loaded term because salvation is a big word for the apostle Paul. Uh, We think of salvation often in one tense. Well, I've been saved. But actually, it's given in three tenses in the New Testament. I have been saved from the power of sin. We call that justification. I am being saved from the penalty of sin. We call that sanctification. And someday, maybe sooner than we realize, I will be saved from the very presence of sin. We call that glorification. That's all part of the power of salvation. Um, So we need to recognize that and affirm that. So that's a great question, and I really appreciate it. Does that help? Yes, it does. Thank you. All right, good. Let's go to the next question, Rick. I I know the emails have been pouring in and the dictated questions, so let's go to the next one. If you want to call us live, you always get preference. Sometimes uh, it takes us a while to get to the other questions, but sooner or later we get them. Let's go to the next one. Well, in relation to that last question that was uh, just asked, um, uh, another listener, Kathy from Lobico, says that uh, she knows what is meant by the phrase the last days, but what do you mean when you say we're in the last of the last days? Well, that's a good question. Now, I didn't actually define it for the last caller, but since you asked it, I'll define it for you. And it's a, it's a great question. The last days in the truest sense began on the day of Pentecost. If you remember in Acts 2, when God the Holy Spirit came, he said, Peter, when they spoke miraculously, uh, they spoke in languages and dialects that they had never known before. And some of the mockers said, well, these men are drunk. And that, that's why they're able to do what they're doing. And Peter says, you know, your reasoning doesn't even make sense. Not to mention it's only the third hour of the day. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. And then he says, this is actually what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit upon all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, and so on. That was fulfilled beginning on the day of Pentecost. They prophesied when they spoke of the mighty works of God. Um, men and women alike, they were speaking scripture. Uh, they were speaking the very words of God as God the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And so the last days began on the day of Pentecost. We have been in the last days since the day of Pentecost. And that too is consistent with the imminent return of Christ because the New Testament gives us a picture like the Lord Jesus could come at any moment, that he could come in 10 seconds, that he could come in 10 minutes, that there's nothing prophetically that needs to be fulfilled for him to come and to catch up his church. And so there's much that needs to be fulfilled, however, for the second coming to take place. But for the catching up of the church, nothing needs to take place prophetically. For the second coming to take place, there needs to be a one world government. There needs to be a rebuilt temple on top of the Temple Mount in Israel that the one world leader who has not yet shown himself, um, who will have a one world government that has not yet shown itself, who will institute a one-world economy that has not yet shown itself. 
Um, this one world leader will walk into a rebuilt temple and in the middle of the great tribulation, he will commit what the prophet Daniel and what Jesus affirmed in Matthew 24 as the abomination of desolation, where he will defile what is holy and in his idolatry, he will make himself out to be God. And so there's much that has to be fulfilled for the second coming. But when you see prophecy being fulfilled for the second coming, you know that the rapture that precedes the second coming is all that much closer. When you see the Christmas decorations in October go up in Walmart, you know that Thanksgiving is near. Why? Because Thanksgiving precedes Christmas. And so when you see God fulfilling prophecy for the second coming, then you know that the rapture of the church is that much closer. And so God not only spoke of the last days, he also spoke of uh, the latter days in the last of the last days. And really, when you look at this picture, it's it's very sobering when he says, you know, things like disobedience to parents, ungrateful, unholy. This is the day that we're living in. When Jesus likened his second coming to the days of Noah and the days of Lot, that's not by accident. The days of Noah were days of gross immorality. Uh, The days of Lot were days of gross perversion, homosexuality. And we're seeing this happen, and it's happening at a fantastic rate. And it's not happening by accident. The spirit of Antichrist is already at work. And it's a reminder to us that the rapture is all that much closer Now, is it possible that God could send a sweeping revival? Sure it is. God can do whatever he chooses to do. But there will come a time and people say, well, I'm praying for a revival. You should pray for a revival. But there will come a time when God will not send a revival. The only thing he's going to send is his son from heaven. That things will ultimately not get worse, but uh, better, but things will ultimately get worse. That's what the Bible unfolds for us. And we need to know that that's reality. Um, so the last of the last days or is that time frame as God is setting the stage for the second coming, then you know that, you know, Israel had to be a nation. They weren't a nation for over 1900 years. And yet the fact, but they needed to be a nation for much of the second coming prophecy to take place. Um, when Israel became a nation in 1948, there were 600,000 Jews in Israel. Uh, it's not by accident that there are over 6 million Jews in Israel today. 43%, some would put it at 50, depending on the exact number, because there's somewhere between 13 and 15 million Jews out of 7 billion people on the planet, somewhere between 13 and 15 million Jews that are alive uh, here on planet Earth. And over 6 million of them live in Israel. Is that by accident? Is it by accident that communism fell? And Jews are migrating. Is it by accident even now in the Ukraine that Jews are now fleeing and they're going to Israel because of the increased anti-Semitic spirit that the Russians are bringing in eastern Ukraine? No, it's not by accident. That's all part of a sovereign God who's at work. He uses the wrath of men to praise him. And again, remember, too, the fact that Russia, not to say that all Russians are against Israel, because indeed they're not. There are godly Russians that love the cause of Christ. But Russia is one of those countries given by name that the prophet Ezekiel spells out that will go against Israel. So we're not surprised by the anti uh, Semitic spirit that you see amongst many of the Russian people against against 
against the Israelis. So God is setting the stage, and I really do believe that we are in the last of the last days. Um, God alone knows the exact time uh, and the day and the hour, but he told us when you see certain things take place, look up because your redemption draws nigh. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. Nancy from Hilton Head says she's got a friend whose daughter is a lesbian, is married to her partner, they live in Maryland, and recently became parents to a baby. As a Christian, what should her response to her friend be as she talks about this new grandchild? Should uh, she show the same excitement and interest she'd show if the parents were heterosexual? Should she go to her friend to visit the parent with her friend to visit the parents and the new baby? Should she send a card or gift welcoming this baby? Currently, she's just changing the subject each time the grandchild is mentioned. So if I understand it correctly, she has a friend who is a grandmother because her daughter is now married in a lesbian-type relationship, and they have a baby together, however that happened. Correct. Okay. Um, You know, always remember the child is innocent. You know, the child is innocent. The parents may be uh, wicked and evil in their lifestyle and choices they make, but the child is innocent. So, you know, the big thing right now on the Internet the last couple days is some six-year-old boy who the parents are claiming is transgender. You know, okay, tell me about it. Uh, you know, there are some wicked people out there and the Lord warned about folks who would cause a little one to stumble, that it would be better for a millstone to be hung around their neck and to be drowned in the sea than to cause a little one to stumble. But this is the kind of thing, the homosexual community, things they said in the eighties when they planned their 40 year strategy to promote homosexuality that they said they would never do and never interface in interfere in, you know, Christian freedom and religion and that evangelicals had no need to fear. But we have plenty of reason to have our eyes wide open because this spirit of Antichrist is at work. And so you have a major mega church in Atlanta where they're baptizing a so-called evangelical church, where they're baptizing homosexuals and the homosexual partner that they're living with is standing right next to them watching the baptism. You know, this is where we're going. And there's going to be some things I have no doubt in my mind that are going to come down in the next couple of years. And some of you are going to be absolutely flabbergasted. And some of the people that I've criticized, whose ministries I've not endorsed, and I said, I don't know why, I have some checks in my spirit. Now it's beginning to come out where some of these guys really are. Anyway, what should you do? Well, remember, the child is innocent. The child is an innocent little boy. And so that grandmother should love that grandchild and try to have a Christian impact, but neither should that grandmother be distorted in her thinking such that she would give affirmation to what God calls sin. So look, this is not new. I've faced this before. There are some people in our own church who have some children, adult children. They've come to Christ. They didn't raise their kids for the cause of Christ. 
And now they've found the Lord and they have some adult children that are living in homosexual relationships. And now they have children and they want to know, what do we do? How do we treat them? Do they come home for Christmas? Do they come home for Thanksgiving? And, and I said, well, yeah, sure. You know, welcome your child at your table. Don't provide a place for them to sleep with their homosexual partner in your home and underwrite their sin any more than you as an individual would want to write under underwrite someone's sin. We were just talking about this in staff meeting this morning, someone who came to the church last week for benevolence and they said they needed a place to stay and they wanted the church to give them a hundred dollars to do what? To underwrite their adultery to unmarried people to stay in a hotel? Not on your life. I would not use God's money in that way. Now, would I help a person who's hungry? Absolutely. Uh, but I'm not going to underwrite sin, and you shouldn't either with your home, which is a, to be a place of, of blessing. Now, actually, this person that wrote is a friend of the grandmother, so she's kind of wondering how should she interface with the so, grandmother. I'm, I'm coming to that, but but good. Thank you. Um, so what she should do is interface with the grandmother in honesty. I'm assuming this grandmother is a born-again Christian. But if she's not, then what you should first do is to try to win your friend to Christ. And by the way, assume nothing. Just because someone says they're saved or whatever, ask some hard questions. And you can do it in a very sensitive way without putting a person on the defensive. Uh, You can say, well, let's call her Mary. You know, Mary, I meet a lot of people who are at different places in their journey with the Lord. And I always want to be an encouragement to them. Uh, I believe God's called us, and you can use the first plural pronoun, us, to include her, believing the best. I believe God's called us to encourage one another in the Lord, and I always want to be sensitive to where people are at in their journey so I can encourage them in the right direction if God gives me that opportunity. Can I ask you a question? Sure. And then ask her the diagnostic question. So number one, make sure that you're dealing with a born-again Christian. Ask her how sure she is on a scale of zero to 100. If she dies, she'd go to heaven. And then understanding that maybe 30% of unsaved people will say they're 100, ask her the second question, on what basis would God let her into heaven? If God said, why should I let you in, what would you say? Again, the mouth speaks that which is in the heart. It will reveal a whole lot, and it will help you. So assuming that you're dealing with a born-again Christian, that's one way. If she's not born again, then for you to talk about you know, her interfacing with her daughter, she probably won't have eyes to see. Why? Because a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. So the ba- greatest service you could do to your friend would be to lead her to Christ, and then God will give her eyes to see the problem. But if she is born again, then deal with her in truth. And say, well, you know, let's pray together for your for your daughter to find Christ as her Savior, that she'd repent of this evil relationship that she's in. Uh, that that's that's dealing in truth um, because it's evil; it's an abomination. Her daughter is headed towards hell. Do not be deceived. The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, and so forth, shall inherit the kingdom of God. God says she's on a pathway to hell. The next verse says, in such were some of you, but God saved you. So God can save anyone. God, if God can save a King Manasseh, God can save a, someone who's in a lesbian homosexual relationship. He can save anyone. Uh, But if she doesn't recognize and come clean 
that her daughter's lost, then she's not going to really help her daughter in the most important things. Because what good is it to have a great relationship with her daughter where her and her lesbian friend just likes her and she goes and spends an eternity in hell? That's a terrible thing. And pray for that little child as well, that you as a grandmother, your grandmother's friend in this case, could have a real impact on that little child for for what's right and true. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980. And our next listener writes, uh, there are two men I would like your opinion on. Is Alistair Begg a good preacher? And have you heard of, and if so, what do you think of the Christian rap artist, Lecrae, would you advise young people to listen to him? Well, Alistair Begg, if he wasn't good, and you may not know this because we have tons of questions that come via the Internet and people who are at uh, our Search the Scriptures website in, or other places. Yes, Alistair Begg is a great man. He loves Christ and the cause of Christ. That's why we play him on this station uh, every day, Monday through Friday at 1030. And there's also a weekend edition that we play as well. And we'll continue to do that, even though we uh, are severing our ties with Moody. Um, lay that aside. Um, and by the way, I, I'm so sure of what he, who he is and what he stands for is we have invited him into our own church. And he was the uh, conference speaker for our missions conference in 2012. So he's a great man of God. I have a deep amount of respect for him, and he's not going to compromise God's word. Doesn't mean that Alistair Begg and Carl Brogy agree on every single verse of Scripture as to what it says or how to apply it. Not necessarily, but I would say 99% uh, we agree on. Lecrea, I, I really can't comment on him a whole lot, um, but let me just give you kind of my general impression of um, rap music, or I think they classify him as holy hop in the uh, technical sense, holy hip-hop. Um, I, I know Mark Driscoll has endorsed Lecrea, but I don't really respect Mark Driscoll. Um, you know, he's he's a really controversial guy. Um, he's uh, he was known for a long time using profanity in the pulpit which he did and thought was fine to relate to people. I give him credit. He's repented of that. Um, He wrote a book on sexuality and married couples that I find absolutely disgusting and an abomination to the truth of Holy Scripture. Um, I'm sure there are some things in it that are correct, but some things that are just awful. But I think his thinking has been tainted by his former background, and he gives an endorsement to this guy. But so does an Al Mohler, who is from Southern Seminary, who's also, but he's a great man of God whom I have the greatest amount of respect for. So um, I've not read enough about him in his lyrics. I know some would say he pushes the envelope, but as a general principle, I'm not in favor of rap and so-called holy hip-hop. Why? Because I think it cultivates a taste for the things of the world. And it's not in the long run building and edifying. Listen, remember when someone comes to Christ, just because even let's let's just give, and again, I don't know this guy. I've not read his lyrics, but let's just give him the benefit of the doubt that his lyrics were the most sound theology possible. 
you know, they're still going to represent where he is in Christ. And when someone comes to faith in Christ, they're a baby in Christ. And it takes time to grow and it takes time to mature. And a lot of these guys, too, that come into the Christian realm who will produce music that is quote-unquote Christian later apostatize and totally reject the faith. Anyway, we're out of time, but I'm glad you could be with us today.